Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Today on CityCast Chicago, what happens when a person is reported missing in Chicago? Trina Reynolds-Tyler with Invisible Institute and Sarah Conway with City Bureau have spent the last two years investigating how Chicago police handle these cases. Their new series is called Missing in Chicago, and they tell us why many families feel the city and CPD isn't taking their stories seriously enough. It's Monday, November 27th. I'm Jacoby Cochran, and this is What Chicago's Talking About. Trina and Sarah combed through data around hundreds of thousands of missing person cases. Sarah explains what they immediately saw. Complaints around how police handle missing persons cases. Complaints that Chicagoans had made about someone who had gone missing. When we started looking at those complaints, we saw that most of them were made by Black women for their children. And we started seeing a pattern in the complaints that look to um, people being told to wait 24 hours, people being denied missing persons reports, and also just Chicagoans receiving abusive language um, and threats and other things from police officers when they were attempting to report a loved one missing. Trina, I want to bring you in here. Can you describe for people who might not be familiar, what do we mean when we're saying a missing persons case? What it means to be missing is is that, you know, when someone that you love, someone that knows you, someone who's in community with you, somebody within your network doesn't see you anymore. And they're like, um, this feels off. Something strange is happening. You know, I think I need to alert the authorities that some, this person is not showing up in the places where they typically are. And and that being said, you know, people are re- are reported missing or go missing actually for many reasons, including wanting to disappear on their own. Right. Some people leave town or they, you know, even flee a violent situation within their living home, you know, as an adult, even leap fleeing from intimate partner violence. The reason why folks report missing persons cases to Chicago police and law enforcement in general is because it's the law enforcement's, you know, uh, duty, um, role, responsibility to locate that missing person and just make sure they're fine. Now, just because a person is located doesn't mean that whoever filed the missing person's report on them is allowed to know their location, what they're doing, right? But ultimately, missing persons cases operate as a function of well-being checks. You know, this person is no longer here. Something feels wrong. You know, if I let law enforcement know, they have the ability to make sure that this person is alive, is okay, and um, can get that person to wherever they need to be, whether it is like, with their loved ones consensually, right? Or um, whether it is that that person says, oh, I've been found and actually I don't want to be- Leave me be. Uh, yeah, l- let me be, right. 
you're looking at mostly 2000 to 2021. How many cases are we talking about in that time frame? Yeah, there are over 340,000 cases, 99.8% of them being closed non-criminal. Um, so if you look at the number of cases that were being filed in the early 2000s, you would see like over 20,000 cases in a year. Um, but over time, cases begin to go down. Um, and now we're at, you know, over 8,000 cases. But it's interesting the cases, when you look at the cases that actually decrease, they're mostly for the cases of black children. It's like the 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 number of white children, white Hispanic folks, like the other demographics, they decrease just a little bit. You know, you know, we're talking in the early 2000s, again, over 20,000. But for some some reason between 2000 and, you know, today, we see like a steep stark decrease in the cases of missing black children reported or closed well, this is reported right okay and it's un- it's unclear if that's because there aren't as many black children who are missing or or if the the cases of black children who are experiencing missingness are just not actually getting reported as as frequently as they used to be we're, we're gonna jump into how to see PD, gather data. What can we learn about some of the gaps in that data? Sarah, I want to bring you back in here. We've talked about it a little bit. When we look at this over 300,000 cases in the last two decades, who largely goes missing in Chicago? One of the things we found when we looked at reported missing persons cases to the Chicago Police Department is that Black people in Chicago make up about two-thirds of all missing persons cases over the past two decades. And in particular, Black girls and women between the ages of 10 and 20 make up about 30% of all the missing persons cases in the city, despite um, compromising only 2% of the city's population as of 2020. 2%. Yes. And, you know, I think another thing that's really important to point out that um, we would talk about often is that about 60% of the reported missing persons cases are for Black children in the city. So when we look at the data, it's really an issue that's impacting Black people in Chicago disproportionately, as well as Black youth, in particular Black girls. I mean, Trina, when we're looking at those cases, right, hundreds of thousands that have been opened, you say about 99% of those get closed every year. What what does that look like for a missing person's case to get closed? Can you kind of break down that a little bit? Um, Chicago police are not allowed to deny any missing person's report for any reason, no matter how long the person has been missing or no matter the relationship the person reporting um, has with the missing person. When you enter this database, you know, of missing persons, it's put into leads a state police database, NCIC, which is the FBI files. And then, you know, of course, CPD has their own data structures. When you look at CPD data structures, uh, the information provided to us through public records requests told us the definitions of a case status. You know, there's language related to like a cleared case, meaning, you know, someone was arrested and prosecuted 
there's language around a case suspension. For example, if they, you know, can't find any additional information related to the case and they're just going to put the case on on pause until they can, you know, submit more information, motion comes. And then, of course, there's the closed non-criminal status, which is incident not criminal in nature and the person is likely found. Now, the problem that we discovered with that um, that case closure is that there were several instances of of homicides that were actually documented homicides that were uh, closed as non-criminal, as well as a handful of cases that had been closed non-criminal, although the person had not actually been found. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, in the case of Desiree Robinson in 2016, um, a a young person, a teenage girl who had been reported missing by her grandfather on November 29th, come December 20th, you know, officers wrote a report up. They said, you know, we spoke to the complainant, missing has been located, victim, offender, no. Um, what we don't see in that report is that she had not actually been found and four days later she was murdered. Um, and her her body was found in a Markham, Indiana garage. She had been murdered by someone who had abused her, sexually abused her. And, you know, it was it's it's so it's it's really tricky here when you're talking about this case closure. Um, and so, you know, when we first looked at the data, the thought was, OK, these are the cases that are criminal in nature. You know, these other cases here, not criminal in nature. But then when we began to pull the underlying documents and uh, cross-reference them with family stories, we got a different picture. We saw mm-hmm. that there were murders, cases that were criminal in nature that lived within the data. And then also, again, this handful of cases where officers wrote in a report that the missing was located and was not a victim or offender of a crime, but they actually had not been located. In some cases, those people were deceased but but officers, for some reason, you know, without that knowledge, wrote down on a piece of paper that that person was just fine and had been found safely. Sarah, I want to bring you here. Has the city and police department openly acknowledged these very clear racial disparities in in the data they do have available? I would say no. We tried to engage with the Chicago Police Department over 10 times to talk to them about how they handle their data, how they handle their records, how they handle off uh, detectives who, you know, families have made complaints about. But unfortunately, the Chicago Police Department never granted us an, an interview. We did get a response from the Chicago Police Department where Thomas Ahern, their spokesperson, uh, stated that they do treat all cases equally and fairly. Um, but I would say overall, there wasn't a, an acknowledgement to us um, or a willingness to really discuss our findings into, you know, this pattern of neglect and massive amounts of data actually missing. So we can only as reporters at City Bureau and Invisible Institute point to, you know, the police records that we have that definitively show enormous gaps in data you know, discrepancies in case closure procedures, as well as testimonies that come from interviews and are in underlying investigative documents about 
how police respond to these missing persons cases. When looking at the data, it's important to note these gaps because like law enforcement can say we treat these cases equally, you know, across zip code, et cetera. But like their data does not even allow them to come to such conclusions. Yeah. You know, the information is missing. And so, like, you're not able to see that their data systems are not equipped for them to definitively say, oh, we treat these cases as equal across zip codes, race. Like, the data is literally not there in so many cases to make such assertions. You all's investigation does an amazing job of reminding people as it moves along that these are not just data points. These are people's lives. As you were moving through these hundreds of thousands of cases and seeing that despite only making up 2% of the city demographic, 30% of the cases are Black women, girls, non-men. What does it feel like to kind of move through those file cabinets and PDFs of, uh, of cases? Well, so one thing I would say is like that is that 30 percent number is for ages 10 to 20 for that age group, which is really frightening. Right. Because it, it that is the sexual exploitation age. That's that hypersexualization of black girls age. That is that that age where, you know, you you experience conflicts in your home and you're like, I can't be here anymore. And you may be you know, forced into the street, uh, using your body as the only, as the only opportunity for negotiating your access to something like housing, right? Somebody's like, well, you can stay on my couch if you X, Y, and Z. And so um, going through all of these stories, knowing that, you know, these instances where even, uh, even if a young person ultimately came back home, Um, It made me think about what happens to them while they are missing and the ways that uh, black girls in particular are sexualized and exploited. um, And it it, it goes so underreported, you know, sometimes never being reported. Right. So it's it's deeply frightening. And it's, um, you know, as a black girl myself, as a as a girl who knows so many other little black girls and who sees the way that society treats and engages with this demographic, um, it it makes me really want to fight, you know, fiercely for um, spaces and conversations that acknowledge the reality of what young people in general are facing. In addition to going through these cases, as you said, there is uh, narrative, there is documentary provided by this investigation. What has been many people's experience working with CPD during a missing persons investigation? I saw things like no one cares and, uh, you know, no one followed up with us. Trina, what were some of those common threads and experiences you were hearing from different families? The first thing that we heard was, right, this frustration with officers telling people that they could not file the report, that, you know, encouraging them to not file the report, saying things like maybe they ran away, maybe they're with a boyfriend, etc. Right. Moving past the officers, finally even allowing them to report their loved one missing in some cases, 
We see officers victim blaming the missing person, alleging because of their history of substance use that their missingness is somehow their fault or not worthy of looking into. We saw issues where folks were talking about how officers were just being dismissive and not following the leads that were necessary in order to close the case and identify what actually happened. There is one complaint that comes to mind that is not actually a family member, but where a DCFS worker talks about their frustrations with a police officer who was closing a case and and she was saying like, that person has not been found, please do not close the case. The complainant says, you know, that the officer says, well, I went to this place and and this, you know, this child in care, they were there. And the the DCFS worker says, like, that young person is not there. I went there. And then the officer laughed and 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 called her sweetie. There's also this this kind of what what really to me hinted at, like ways that sexism also can play a role in in the treatment of women attempting to engage with police and law enforcement. Now, now, of course, like we can't say this is across the board, like what every police officer is doing. But it's interesting of the 54 complaints, like it's not like there was like one officer who was named in all of those mm-hmm. complaints or even in of all the families we spoke to. It's not like they were all dealing with the same police officer. No, they were dealing with. But there's like an institutional sort of nonchalantness to when we're talking about crimes largely impacting non-men, girls and women, whether it is missing persons, whether it's sexual or domestic abuse. There is sort of this. Oh, what you want me to do about it? That's the sentiment that um, that and it's like a cultural it's like a you, you're, you're saying like institutions like a because these folks are uh, attached, you know, connected across time and space, not by way of an individual officer, but by way of their experience with the institution of Chicago police. Even when we spoke to uh, detectives within CPD. This was a sentiment that came up as well, is that missing persons are not a political priority for the Chicago Police Department, that the priority is shootings and violent, like what's seen as violent crime. And it trickles down from whoever the mayor's office is appointed to run CPD to, um, you know, the people working in that institution. And so that was something, you know, that we when we cultivated and developed police sources, you know, that we, we would hear that they don't feel ill-equipped. They feel ill-equipped in ways to handle this crisis, that there are, you know, thousands of missing persons cases. And our own findings kind of show that CPD is not really able to rely on data to really understand who's most impacted, who is, you know, really um, at the brunt of this crisis and which cases should really be prioritized. Uh, Sarah, Throughout this, I know you all have looked at so many cases. Is there one that has has really stuck out to you throughout this time? The story that runs throughout our investigation is about Latanya Moore, the mother of Shantaya Smith. We went and visited Latanya. She's now living near the border of Iowa in a very small rural Illinois town. She left Chicago after what had happened to her daughter and her family. Latanya's experience 
mirrored in a lot of ways the findings that we had in the investigation. She was urged to wait before reporting her daughter missing. LaTanya also was left to conduct a lot of the investigation on her own. And LaTanya had to really, in lieu of police, in her opinion, deeply searching for her daughter, Shantaya, she had to look for her with her family members and community members in North Lawndale. Ultimately, a couple of weeks after LaTanya had reported Shantaya missing, um, Shantaya was found, her, her body was found just a block down from her own home in North Lawndale. And to this day, uh, LaTanya really is still seeking answers as to what happened to Shantaya, that she doesn't have a lot of resolve around. No one has been charged in Shantaya's murder. She still doesn't have the results from the DNA evidence that was collected at the crime scene five years later. And she feels really deeply neglected from the Chicago Police Department. Um, LaTanya ultimately decided to leave Chicago um, because of what happened. She was facing an eviction after having to deal with her only daughter going missing, um, her daughter, only daughter being murdered. I mean, throughout this conversation, you all have made it clear beyond the cultural and institutional dismissiveness, the the data does not bear out oftentimes because it's non-existent. Trina, what are the biggest issues with how CPD is collecting or not collecting data and, and how is that ultimately contributing to the problem? So I think the first thing to note is that missing persons is one of the last incidents that is in paper, on paper form. And so you can imagine it takes a lot of time for it to go from a beat cop who is writing a report for them to phone in to the missing person section, who will then notify the the leads and NCIC folks, but then for that paper to make its way to the detectives and then for it to be distributed to the detectives. It's like this information is going from a piece of paper into a database. And so like, you know, in some papers, we, we don't see an officer arrival time at all. In some underlying documents, we can see when the officer arrived, but it's again, not reflected within the data. So there are just like so many ways that digitizing the system could be an improvement, but it's simply not enough. One former law enforcement official, Patricia Casey, told us about how there must be some screening for missing young people, especially, but um, missing people when they return, um, as it is very likely that while they were gone, they experienced some form of exploitation human trafficking, you know, whatever it may be. And law enforcement has so said to us, like, you know, it's kind of hard to get a young person to be forthcoming about what's happened to them. Um, that doesn't mean you shouldn't try, mm -hmm. one. But two, like, if you yourself as an institution recognize that underreporting occurs because people do not want to tell law enforcement about what has happened to them, then, like, we, we maybe need to reconsider who is in front of young people and, and and taking the reports of what actually happened to them while they were in the streets. Um, you know, young people have fears that they themselves might be criminalized for telling police what happened to them while they're missing. 
Sarah, we've heard from Mayor Brandon Johnson and Governor Pritzker at different times throughout their uh, administrations that they want to do more here. But what is the city and the state? uh, What is being done at the city and state level as of now? That's a really great question. So we know that Mayor Johnson campaigned on establishing um, a missing persons initiative to direct more resources and um, training towards community members, how you can equip and um, train community to better support one another when individuals go missing. We had reached out to Brendan Johnson's office, but we didn't get any comment or an interview to understand the ways that this um, campaign pledge is going to um, manifest. Mm -hmm. I would say that when we talk to State Rep. Cam Buckner, who is a co-chair with uh, State Senator Maddie Hunter of the Illinois Task Force on Missing and Murdered Chicago Women, which started this year um, and is going to be delivering a report to Governor Pritzker as well as the Illinois State Legislature in the end of 2024. Uh, State Rep. Buckner told us that, you know, they can write laws in Springfield, but ultimately, A lot of change within CPD falls to city council and the mayor's office putting pressure on the Chicago Police Department to make change, to abide to state law, to have better data practices, to put more attention into missing persons cases, to perhaps have a missing persons unit. You know, that's one thing that um, advocates and, and law enforcement would point out to us is that there, that doesn't exist within CPD currently. So, um, but does exist in other, other uh, police departments nationwide. It's kind of up in the air about like what Mayor Johnson is going to do with this missing persons crisis in Chicago. And it seems like there's a lot that could be done by both city council and the mayor's office into holding CPD to account. I mean, it goes without saying for many of the the people, the families involved here, this is some of the scariest or the worst things that have ever happened in their life. Uh, but it's one of those topics that I feel like is just in the shadows that, that we never talk about. We just hope and pray it never happens to us. Trina, if you suspect someone has gone missing, what can you do and what are your rights essentially, you know, as people look at this investigation and mainly feeling a little bit hopeless? So one, I'd like to point folks to the resource that lives on um, ChicagoMissingPersons.com. It's a Know Your Rights resource that just equips folks with the language, word by word, what to say to police when you're at the district, um, when they, especially when they tell you, deny your report, like it is against state law and police directives to deny my report, like giving, we've given folks that as a resource. So if there's anyone out there who is just like, well, what do I say when they tell me no? Please take a look at that guide. But also within that guide is like some advice that we were able to gather from people who had experienced missing loved ones before. Things like bringing an advocate with you when you are attempting to report your loved one missing. Things like, you know, creating flyers and actually canvassing, um, spreading the word around um you know, getting your missing loved one back 
what this reporting has shown me through and through is that this will take community in those moments. Community gives you hope. And so I just like, I just want to make sure to name, like, do not attempt to suffer in isolation, like speak your peace, you know, people care. And, and, and a lot of times, you know, in this time of crises, community uh, will really hold you down and, and support you in your grief, in your search, um, in your processing. I mean, obviously you all, you know, really gave space to a lot of these families who did not feel seen, who did not feel heard to, as you just said, Trina, to speak their mind, to speak their peace, to try to not suffer isolation. Sarah, what were you hearing back from families about what was what was it like for them to share their stories uh, kind of outlined in this way? Well, I think that for Trina and I, like connecting with the families and learning about their loved one um, was one of the, the brightest parts of this reporting. Um, the way that people's love endures for you know, women and girls in their life and the way that a lot of women or like femme identifying people, they've put so much labor and fight into keeping their loved one's memory alive. I think one thing that we found in talking to the families is that they were happy that we weren't just talking about, you know, like the the trauma or their pain, but that we were really wanted to understand their story but we were looking into overarching systemic patterns within CPD um, because I think that a lot of these families want to see justice and they want other families in the future to not go through the same thing that they went through. To follow this entire series, visit chicagomissingpersons.com. We'll drop a link in the show notes. Before we let you go, a mysterious illness is affecting dogs across Illinois. Yes, big and small. To learn more, head over to our website at chicago.citycast.fm. That's also where you can subscribe to our daily newsletter, Hey Chicago. Now, of course, I'm not going to leave you with just some puppy panic. If you're new here, we end every CityCast episode with some good news. This Thursday at 7 p.m., you can join me at the Promontory in Hyde Park for karaoke storytellers. The homie Lisa Beasley is back in the building performing another one of her dope-ass characters. Uh, This is my last live show of the year, so hopefully you can come out and celebrate with us. You can find ticket links in the show notes. As always, we appreciate you for reading and listening. Make sure you bookmark chicago.citycast.fm and save our number in your phone, 773-780-0246. I'm going to talk to you bright and early tomorrow. Peace.